Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon and through Patreon join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites. And the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care hey so uh we're returning to a topic that we've been coming back to uh, a lot but i like getting different angles on it and different uh you know takes so the whole tim ferris digital nomad um online entrepreneurship uh, hustle. Uh, I've called it a motivation. I went through a phase where I was sharing like tons of these memes on my my Twitter, and uh, uh, they always have like pictures. I don't know why. For a while, it was the Wolf of Wall Street, but lately it's been um, Peaky Blinders. Lately, they love that. There's always some new patron saint of the online entrepreneur. Even if the character is not an entrepreneur, uh, they'll use it. But uh, we have today two guys who have written about this stuff from slightly different angles, but also a certain amount of overlap. But uh, I'll let them introduce themselves. I'll go in alphabetical order. We could start with uh, Brett. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Brett. I work in marketing as my day job, but I do a bit of freelance writing on the side. And um, I did a piece for Current Affairs on the sort of ideology behind some of these Tim Ferriss motivation types and the um, exactly what he was talking about with the business accounts posting memes with like Peaky Blinders, Killian Murphy, a lot of uh, a lot of that and sort of my take on that. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at this guy Nelson, but I mostly just retweet people that are much smarter than myself. So And we have Paris Marks. Hey, yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I host a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us and I'm also a freelance writer. So, you know, I write critically about technology and cities mainly, you know, from a from a left perspective. And I've previously written about this with regard to digital nomads and this idea of kind of like location independence um, and creating a business that allows you to kind of live and work from anywhere. So that's kind of the the angle that I've looked at this through. But uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. I think it'll be interesting. Yeah. And I just realized uh, we didn't use Brett's last name, neither I nor Brett. So it's Brett Nelson. Uh, yeah. So if you want to look him up as Brett Nelson, but something about the Silicon Valley ethos slash mindset. I mean, and you were, we were talking about this before we started recording, but, uh, and I had a similar experience to you, Paris, where I had been reading, um, I read a different book than you. I read, um, the book by, I read the book by Yasha Levine called Surveillance Valley. And, um, I'm not sure which book you read. I would like you to mention it, you know, in your answer. But there's been strains of this, I guess you can call it techno-libertarianism, um, going back going back for um, a while. Uh, what is it, the whole Earth or the whole something catalog was one thing I know. The Even Ken Kesey and those people, these kind of techno-hippies and everything. But this thing has existed for a while. And I was curious if you could share your um, take on that. Absolutely. Yeah, the book I read um, recently, I've, I've read a number, but the one that really stands out for this kind of conversation and to get this kind of insight into how these people think or how they approach these things is uh, Fred Turner's From Counterculture to Cyberculture. And he kind of looks at this development from about the 60s and 70s on through to 
I guess like the early 2000s and stuff, right? Um, looking at Stuart Brand and the whole catalog and this kind of network of publications and, and people who come from this countercultural movement, their kind of response to the kind of bureaucratic corporate world that they saw and, and wanting to escape that. You know, the way that they approached that was not by partaking in activism to try to fight for um, a better world and to kind of like change structures to create a better world, but to approach it through kind of a libertarian individualistic lens um, that's focused on like consciousness and things like that, that leads them down the road to seeing technology as the way to kind of build the decentralized communities that they want to see. But actually what ends up coming out of that is because they don't have that kind of critique of the system, essentially, like a, like a radical critique, um, they end up kind of being I wouldn't say consumed by the system because they, you know, are interested in this stuff as well. Like, um, it's not like a corporate system that's taking them in. They are very much trying to make themselves a part of it and and to change it in certain ways. But it's this group of like really well off white people who men mainly who come into these these communities of technology, um, cybernetics, you know, counterculturalism. This kind of uh, like these kind of spirituality movements, and they bring that into Silicon Valley, essentially, right? And so what they end up doing, like the culture that they promote um, ends up aligning itself with like Newt Gingrich and the Republicans in the 90s who are pushing for this kind of privatization of the web, even though at one point they were kind of pushing back against these corporate hierarchies they're not really challenging the, the corporate part of that, the hierarchical part. And so as soon as they can see like a way to engage with the corporate world that is less hierarchical, they take that. And, you know, I would argue that what it appears from, from reading Ted's book is that they're constantly trying to sell like a way out of this kind of corporatized, bureaucratized world while integrating themselves in it, you know, making a lot of money in the process, making themselves like the kind of figureheads for this movement. Um, but by promoting these kind of right-wing libertarian policies, they just end up, you know, increasing the corporate power of some of these companies in the process because they're pushing this kind of idea of work that is short-term, disconnected from, you know, having a stable job or anything like that, they degrade the living standards and and kind of the working life of people below them. But because they come from this kind of privileged background, they are able to reap the benefits of these while it's, you know, other people who end up struggling because of the kind of changes that they push, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, it totally makes sense. And, you know, when you mentioned the book and the whole earth catalog and i'm glad i got it right because i usually uh, do malpropisms i almost said whole foods catalog but <laughs> the, had a hunch so i went to surveillance valley and sure enough the chapter i was talking about there's a footnote and um yasha says this chapter was greatly influenced and inspired by fred turner's pioneering work on the ties between the military and industrial worlds that spawned the internet and the hippie culture of the 1960s turner is a professor in the department of communication at stanford university i recommend that anyone who wants a better understanding of the utopian ideas that undergirds so much of our internet culture today read his fabulous book from counterculture to cyberculture stuart brand the whole earth network and the rise of digital utopianism i think digital utopianism is a great uh, term for what we're talking about today it shows very clearly that what we consider to be new developments are really warmed over ideas and notions that originated in the 19 indeed in that sense internet culture is not so different than from the rest of american contemporary culture so even the book that i mentioned basically points back to the book you mentioned so i mean yasha's book is uh great in its own right but definitely uh read read that book by fred by fred turner something interesting about all of all of this is i you know i do think this is uh very old but i think every generation or decade has its um person that kind of brings it you know updates it to the latest uh developments and i i want to ask you guys Two things. Would you agree that this current strain of uh, motivation and uh, digital utopianism has been that Tim Ferriss has been probably the most uh, responsible for popularizing it? Or would you um, put that on someone else? And do you feel that there's been anyone since him that has taken it to the next level? Or is he still like the, the last? If it is him or whoever it is, you know, it's still the last person um, is responsible for this current strain of it. 
Did you want to start, Brett? Yeah, sure. Um, as far, well, as far as Tim Ferriss goes, I think you probably you're probably correct in that he's the the most influential person to kind of touch on this, and the, he's probably responsible for the latest wave of it. I think that um, as Paris sort of explained, there's been this style of thought and this kind of corporate counterculture idea for a very long time, and I think that that's probably the instinct that has been capitalized on by a lot of these, um, you know, motivation peddlers, in particular with Tim Ferriss. Um, I think he had so much success because not only was he one of the first guys to kind of like disseminate it on a mass scale, but I also think that like his book um, is, is it, it's a pretty easy read. I know, I think T, you said you read it. Yeah, yeah, I, I read it. And I'm the, I'll be honest. Uh, I think you've been honest about this too, Brett, that I was a um, believer in it in the beginning like i i bought it in full earnestness it wasn't an ironic read I, i'll be i'll be honest but as time went on i just kind of the luster kind of wore off on it and i just kind of realized okay this is kind of uh very ethically weird i'm sorry but yeah, no, no 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 yeah i mean full full disclosure i i read that and i was 100 percent sold on the digital nomad life and i you know i got my remote job and i, I packed up and i went to asia and took me took me about a week of uh, actually interacting with other people and i was like this is awful these people are horrible and these people have a terrible worldview and then things started to swing the other way pretty quick for me and that, that was pretty much it but um and when you went to asia uh did you find a community of like-minded people where you went um so i, I actually so the first place i went was vietnam and um i did not i ended up just meeting a, a handful of people who actually like were just from ho chi Minh city and i um, spent most of my time with them so then from there i went to chiang mai which is like the the digital nomads like hot that that's like the digital nomad capital of the world or whatever right i went there and i you know first day signed up for a co-working space and i was like oh yeah i'm gonna meet like a bunch of other people we're gonna bounce business ideas out of each other it's gonna be great and i went in there and like i had like a like a like i still have this job actually but it's a full-time job it's remote and um i was like sitting down to do my work and everyone just wanted to talk like during the time that i was working but like talk about nothing like it was just a lot of like the motivation shit like like nothing of substance and i just kept feeling like you know this is all just networking like none of none of it's real and most of it was people trying to um as you and i kind of talked about too like they're lifestyle peddling they're not like there's there, there's no like business substance or anything behind it like um and nobody was actually doing any work and <laughs> i realized pretty quickly that it was pretty much just one big scam yeah yeah i one thing i've noticed from uh you went further than me and you've actually like pulled the trigger on it. But when, but I've always uh, kind of kept my eye on the space because I just got um, very fascinated with it. I think I read enough account, like accounts like yours to kind of see like, okay, uh, this is not uh, um, what it's cracked up to be, just seeing other people uh, discuss it. But I kind of noticed that there was less and less talk. I mean, even in Tim Ferriss's book, he at least has some kind of attempt at actionable advice. And he says, find something to sell, but he doesn't really give you any ideas. But he gives you the example of his nootropic stuff, which is sounds really uh, scammy. You know what I mean? But uh, I started noticing more and more people weren't actually selling products. They were just selling how to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So their business was just eBooks of how to be an entrepreneur. And this entrepreneur just became this empty thing where at least Tim Ferriss was, you know, at least trying to keep the pretense of you're actually are an entrepreneur. You have a product, you have a product, uh, you have to find a way to get it cheap and then, you know, sell it as expensive as you can and keep your prices low. Whereas these people, I'm like, everybody can't make an eBook, but I guess I was wrong because as you show in your article, <laughs> there is a whole ecosystem of people just selling eBooks books about how to sell ebooks yeah that's essentially what it devolves to and um i think that's the funny part about the whole thing is like you get into this mindset when you get wrapped up in that that like you're an entrepreneur and you're doing this and like people are just haters or whatever right and you and i kind of touched on this in the dms as well that like um no, no none of these people who want to be an entrepreneur and take control of their life or resist the corporate structure none of them are like opening a corner store on their street or something, right? Like none of them are like starting a traditional business. It's always like, how do I sell a lifestyle that I'm actually not currently living to people and try to make money that way? And that, that, that was pretty much what tipped me off to the whole thing being a scam the second I like started talking to these people. I mean, I, I tried to do the like, I was like, yeah, I'm going to work from the beach. It's going to be great. I think I lasted like 10 minutes and then just like went inside and like did actually just put my head down and like did my job. And then I was like, well, this sucks. I'll pass this off to um, Paris. Um, something that I noticed too, and 
the libertarian streak through it, or the quasi-libertarian uh, streak through it, I think is something that has a lot of overlap with the um, tech world. And I think even in the brick and mortar or the um, corporate tech offices, they try to make a micro version of this kind of freedom thing where, okay, you're in an office, but even in the office, you're not tied to a traditional uh, office or a cubicle. Here's a wide open space. Here's a Here's a bike room. Here's a place where you can bring your pets on Thursdays. And it's like uh, in kind of little minor ways, even like this publicly traded company with an office is trying to sell within the confines of the four walls of this um, basic corporation. This almost strains of this libertarianism, this um, freedom from tradition. And it's, and it's so silly. Like you have quarterly reports. You have a corporate council. Like who are you fooling? You have a CEO, you know, and my, I don't even know what I'm even really asking, but just basically, I just want to get your take on the whole libertarian strain that goes through all of this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think just briefly to, to um, comment on your last question as well. Like, I think if we're thinking about this kind of like digital nomadism, lifestyle, entrepreneurship, that sort of stuff, I think Tim Ferriss certainly seems to be like the leading kind of person pushing those ideas. I think if we're thinking like digital utopianism more broadly, like I think that can be a lot of things associated with Silicon Valley. But I think if we're talking about like this particular part like aspect of it that we're discussing in this episode. I think for me, at least Tim Ferriss seems to be one of the people who is pushing that most. Right. And, and, you know, like both of you, I have also read the book and back around 2012, 13, I was like simultaneously reading these kind of like, um, Tim Ferriss, digital nomadish kind of books alongside like reading Marx and Lenin and Rosa Luxemburg and like these kind of, um, you know, communist writers. Um, and so it, it didn't really make any sense in that, um, you know, to put those two things together. And I think it took me a little bit of time to realize that. Um, I didn't go as far as Brett in like uh, taking off to Southeast Asia and trying to, you know, become one of these digital nomads. But I I did do a lot of travel and obviously I'm a freelance writer and, you know, I uh, I worked abroad quite a bit for a number of years. So I had like a sort of experience of that in, in the sense that I paid a lot of attention to what these people were doing for a while. And that's kind of how I picked up on, you know, the, the critique that I developed and the issues with it that, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into. But, you know, on your point about the libertarianism and how that kind of plays into this, you know, I think what you're describing there about the corporate offices and even, you know, when you see that with the co-working spaces in the um, locations where these kind of digital nomads like to uh, like to go, like Chiang Mai. Um, one of the interesting things to me is how that does connect back to these ideas that we were talking about just a few minutes ago, right, with Fred Turner and the counterculture and all this. Like their idea was, let's kind of break down the hierarchies in these corporations and make it seem like we are changing society through, you know, using technology to break down these kind of barriers. You know, I think in practice, sure, there might be, you know, a few less positions in the um, corporate chart, you know, of, of all the people who work at the company. But, you know, this is still a capitalist corporation that has certain incentives. Um, and while it might like to appear uh, more friendly and, you know, good for workers and things like that, when it, when it really comes down to um, making profits, and especially after a company has gone public and has to be more responsible to shareholders, you know, it's still going to be as exploitative as any other company, but they try to hide that with kind of the, the, the rhetoric that comes with Silicon Valley and these tech companies, right? Yeah. And that word utopianism, I think is just a great word because even uh, if it's not the digital nomad utopianism, then there's the um, office drone utopianism. Like the, like this, like every aspect of it has a type of utopianism that, again, I think dates back to what we were talking about with uh, Turner's, Turner's book, which um, I myself haven't read, but, you know, I read indirectly through Yasha Levine's uh, account, what Turner was talking about. And one thing that I always wondered before I read um, Yasha Levine channeling Fred Turner was I always wondered how in the place of hippies and, you know, summer of love and, um, you know, free love and and all that stuff in the land of um, 
San Francisco did this horrible corporate creation of um, Silicon Valley culture get born. And I always thought of it as the contradiction. And it wasn't until I um, read the history of it all that I realized actually it's not a contradiction or a coincidence that it directly came out of a mutation of it, you know, uh, and even Ken Kesey, you know, um, and the whole electric Kool-Aid acid test stuff and all that stuff had a direct, even Ken, Ken Kesey was kind of a prophet of all this stuff. It, it was uh, very much tied together. And when you actually see how it's tied together, it, it makes sense. It's it's And it kind of shows that liberals, people who fancy themselves left of center, um, have very much a role in this as, as well in this techno-libertarianism. One thing, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say one reason why I have a trouble. I I said earlier uh, that that uh, I'm not even sure what I'm asking sometimes because this is so big to me. It's kind of hard for me to even, you know, process it into a coherent whole. It's a very, I think, big and, and historic trend that it's like an octopus or a hydra. It has a lot of different um, heads. I'm sorry, go on. No, I I was just going to say that, you know, I think these things become normalized, right? These ideas. And so, you know, what might have seemed unusual 20 or 30 years ago, because we get surrounded, you know, by this kind of media ecosystem and, and the ideas that we receive through our jobs and all these sorts of things, it just becomes normal to us that we work this way and that society functions in this way. And it makes it more difficult then to kind of peel back the layers to, to you know, look at that history, to see how things actually developed and to recognize where these things that we think are normal today actually come from, right? And and how they became normal in the first place. You know, because the, the idea that we should all be entrepreneurs who are kind of like our own businesses, seeking out our own work, forming teams as we get work from a company would have been completely like unimaginable to most people, you know, several decades ago, right? But now increasingly, because of these ideas, because of how they have come into the public consciousness, because of how the economy has changed, it becomes more normalized that we are increasingly precarious in this way. And we're all kind of searching for the security so that we don't need to, you know, constantly be searching for work, constantly be trying to pay the next bill, constantly be trying to earn enough money just to like survive, right? And obviously that has worked out tremendously well for these major companies. Um, And a lot of these ideas were pushed by people who said that it would work out in our interests um, you know, at one point or another. Um, and, and obviously it hasn't. Right. And so I think we, I think it's important to recognize those kind of historical patterns and, and, you know, a lot of people won't know these sorts of things. Um, because once we recognize that we can see how, you know, certain interests push these ideas and these economic changes that are now hurting us in the present. And that in some cases are forcing us to seek out these things like Tim Ferriss, where we are going to try to be like the one person in, you know, the one person who has one of these businesses succeed, but that is something that's actually like in reality, really difficult to pull off and usually requires that, you know, we come into digital nomadism and and these kind of ideas that Ferris promotes already with privilege and money and a good job, you know, beforehand. Um, But it's sold to people who don't have those things who are trying to replicate it and simply don't have like the resources and the ability to do that. In your article, um, you bring up the whole privilege aspect and I think that's very true because something that there was a story that happened recently that kind of became the poster child, uh, the most recent poster child for this stuff with the um, black Americans in Bali. And I felt very conflicted about that story. And the reason why I felt conflicted wasn't because I didn't think that those um, people were doing something wrong where I didn't appreciate the the way in which uh, these people were kind of um, contributing to the problem because that's something that uh, is in both your articles, the idea this is kind of like a Ponzi or pyramid scheme where you just basically, or almost like a multi-level marketing scheme in a way where you're just basically passing it on to someone else. You're just kicking, you're just punching it down down the line, you know, you know the problem. And these people were very much doing that, but it was kind of disturbing to me about how these people were being made kind of the poster children um, for this. And it, and it felt like the a lot of the Indonesians were extra angry at them when this has been kind of going on for like at least over a decade now. I mean, this current post-Ferris iteration of it, you know, and I'm not one of those people that believes, oh, 
true equality is letting minorities or women grift or scam or, you know, the same as white guys have been allowed to, you know. So that wasn't my angle. But I also didn't feel like it was fair to make these people like the face of this trend, especially when there's all these white men in Bali who have been uh, doing this stuff for like for like a while, didn't get like publicly um, vilified like this. And people were saying, oh, but it's different because she was telling on herself. And I'm like, these guys have so many damn ebooks that, I mean, yeah. these black <laughs> Bali people are not the first people to tell on themselves. It's not like these guys are like a secret society, like skull and bones. These people tell on themselves all the time, you know? So I, I was kind of wondering about you guys' uh, take, take on that. Because I I don't agree either way. I I'm not saying these people should be able to get away with it, but I am also annoyed that uh, they became the face of it. Yeah, no, I think you make a really good point, particularly in like the people were saying, oh, like they told on themselves, so, like they deserved it, and like like you said, like I personally know like 20 white guys who would post that exact same thread, right? Like and it would be the exact same, like, and they just wouldn't get that type of hate. Um, and I think it's sort of telling how much people were dogpiling on that particular thread because, I mean, I thought the thread was like pretty um, cringe or whatever you want to call it, but it was also pretty bog standard digital nomad stuff. Like there wasn't anything particular, particularly like egregious about it, except perhaps that it's the middle of a pandemic. But I mean, if you hop on over to the digital nomad subreddit right now, the first three posts, like the top three posts right now are all just like people posing with their laptops on like beaches and stuff around the world, right? Like it's not, like you said, it's not like it's a secret cabal of people who like hold all their secrets close to their chest. In fact, the culture is very much predicated on trying to convince other people to give you money to teach them to be able to do the same thing that you're pretending that you're doing in that country, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, Oh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't read this specific thread, but you know what, what you described and what Brett described sound about right, right? It seems like the, the anger for this is misdirected um, because, you know, white guys have been doing this for a very long time in the same way that, you know, I described like the kind of countercultural people are, were like, you know, wealthy white men kind of pushing these ideas. What I saw when I was observing what was going on with the digital nomads was, again, this was like a very white culture, a very generally well-off culture that, you know, had money or came from money or had good jobs before, whatever, right? I think the other aspect of this that really stood out to me and really troubled me was how you have these people who are coming from, you know, wealthier countries like the United States, like Canada, like the UK, like parts of Western Europe that are then going to Indonesia, to Thailand, to Vietnam, to places like this where um, the currencies have, well, the currencies are not as strong, right? So their money is worth more so they can get more for their dollar, right? And so they're kind of taking advantage of that but in the process, they are like they have benefited from these systems in the West that are funded through public dollars, through you know taxation, um, and they are trying not to contribute back to that. In the sense that in a lot of these digital nomad communities, there's a lot of focus on registering your business somewhere where there's going to be no corporate tax or really low corporate tax, like Delaware or Singapore or somewhere like that. And if your country allows it, switching countries often enough so you also don't have to pay income tax, right? And so you're not contributing back, but then you also move to these countries where, you know, yes, you are making purchases and things like that, but generally you're not you're also not paying taxes or not very much taxes in these countries that you are going to. And when you have enough of these kind of wealthy nomads clustering in one place, you're not only making it so there are services that start to cater to those people instead of to local people. But there was also, you know, when I was researching um, the article that I wrote, I found that there was also some evidence that these people were um, pushing up some rents in some of these um, cities uh, and, you know, just having these other effects that, you know, not only are they coming in to kind of take advantage of this low currency, but they're potentially making some things in these local people's lives worse while they're kind of taking advantage of, you know, what comes with living in that place. Definitely. I saw that a lot, actually, when I was in, in particular, Chiang Mai is like the easiest example of that. Um, like Niman Road in Chiang Mai is like almost entirely just like uh, Westerners, right? Like, like it's very, very few Thai people there. And like most of the people living there are expats or, or, or digital nomads or whatever they call themselves. And like the rents there are not 
that cheap because they're like almost designed more like Western style towers and things like that. It's, it's, it's actually very fascinating because it's very different than like the outskirts of Chiang Mai. And I think like just to build on that a little bit, um, one of the things I noticed right away is uh, sort of what you were talking about, Paris, and that like the currency is lower. You can get a lot more like your dollar goes a lot further there. And um, it's not like people are paying taxes into services or anything. So you hear a lot of people complain about certain things um, wherever you're at, like, oh, the traffic is so bad or like the transit's so bad or whatever. And it's just like the way they talk about either the people or the services or the businesses or anything where they're at, um, it sounds like they're expecting it to be like their personal playground rather than like a place where people actually live and like have to get by and things like that. And it's sort of, it's one of the things that really turned me off the, um, the whole culture of it right away was just the way people kind of talk about others there. You know what's crazy though? Uh, it's very interesting about what you said. I live in I live in Clinton Hill, but on the border of Bedstuy. For since the nineties, I've either lived on one side of the border or the other, either on in Bedstuy or in uh, Clinton Hill, right? And you know, I've seen it gentrifying in real time. I was here way before I gentrified, and when I used to go on like the brownstoner boards and stuff like that, there were people who would talk about. The people in, um, you know, Bed-Stuy, like, you know, generations long Americans, you know, some people have been here longer than a lot of these people as far as their families and stuff. People were talking about locals in the same way. It was very kind of crazy, you know, talking about um, businesses or things that they thought were eyesores that, you know, like that they treat as inconveniences to to them and they, they just got here. And it's, it's very interesting that this stuff happens abroad. And it also... Um, happens here but i also think an interesting flip side of that right is um i think to a certain degree i think whiteness and particularly like white maleness across the world really is kind of a passport to get away with a lot of stuff even among a lot of non-white people i think a lot of non-white uh, people kind of give a pass like okay white people are supposed to be like this and they have the money and it's like being putting up with this is not so bad from them at least because at least they're supposed to be on top and but when black people or other non-white people are doing it okay that's a bridge too far like it's one thing to um have to be treated like this or have to deal with white privilege but a black person you know that's 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 too much and i felt there was a there was a lot of that in that bali thing and i guess what i'm trying to ask is how was it with the locals as far as i'm sure there was probably a contingent of them that you know chafed against it but i also wonder if there was enough if there was any strain of it where it was like whether because of poverty or desperation or opportunism that you know there were a lot of people created a cottage industry around catering to these people and getting and making getting rich relative to the other locals around this culture yeah i think that definitely exists particularly in certain types of like tours and um um like businesses, like th there's always very specific areas in everywhere I've been that like cater to tourists. Like for instance, Ho Chi Minh um, City has the uh, the backpacker street, and um, everything there is like like all the prices are like the exact same you'd pay back in North America. Um, but I think that definitely exists, and I think one of the things that interested me while I was over there was um, hearing kind of local takes on different types of tourists. And I think it sort of reproduces some of what you were saying. Um, one of the things that Canadians, Australians, etc., love to do abroad is say, um, oh, don't worry, I'm not American, right? Um, because they have like the mental image that the Americans are like the worst tourists. And then like uh, other Europeans will say that, but about like the British. And what I sort of heard from the locals was like, oh, yeah, like we don't care. Like, or like from locals that I spoke to were like, oh, like um, we don't really care as long as they like spend their money and like blah, blah, blah. And like, but um, the way they would speak about non white people was actually very different. And I think that sort of reinforces what you were saying. Oh, so you, you've seen what I'm what I'm talking about. Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, like oh, in, very in particular, oh, very there was a lot of hatred of Chinese. I, I heard from a lot of people and um, and yeah, I heard a couple of Vietnamese people say like, oh, yeah, like I would never date a black or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally believe it. I'm um, oh, sorry. Go on. 
I was just going to say, and I think that's sort of like pretty much just goes into what you were talking about, where it's like the perception that like it's OK if white people get away with this because they're white or whatever. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Frank Wilderson was on the show talking about Afro pessimism. We were kind of talking about that. And he told a story where he was saying how his um, he had a friend that I think was Palestinian or some type of Middle Eastern person or Arab person that was uh, oppressed by Jewish people. And then the guy was talking about how there was an extra indignity when the uh, Israeli uh, soldier made the um, the African soldier, uh, you know, dress them down. And then Frank Willis was like, wait a minute, why was that extra, uh, you know, in, indignity? Like, you know, why is that more of an indignity than the person in charge of the whole system, you know, dressing you down? And the implication was kind of like, uh, wow, we're so low, even the black even the black people feel like they have a right to treat us bad. And then it kind of made him feel a certain kind of way. And and that's kind of what the whole Bali thing gave me a little bit of a of a flashback to. So what you says is um is interesting because it kind of jibes with jibes with that. But in, in general, one of the problems I have with this whole thing, uh, have you guys ever heard of the elephant and the uh, blind men story where there's a bunch of blind men trying to uh, figure out what an elephant is? No, I haven't. Uh, it's this old Indian uh, parable. So it goes back to Hindu times, and it traveled like around the world through like um, Buddhist Buddhism and all this stuff. But it kind of goes like this: uh, it's the blind men and the elephant story. So once upon a time, there lived six blind men in the village. One day, the villagers told them, "Hey, there is an elephant in the village today." They had no idea what an elephant was. They decided, even though we would not be able to see it, let us go and feel it anyway. All of them went where the elephant was. Every one of them touched the elephant. Hey, the elephant is a pillar, said the first man who touched his, its leg. Oh no, it is like a rope, said the second man who touched the tail. Oh no, it is like a thick branch of a tree, said the third man who touched the trunk of the elephant. It is like a big hand fan, said the fourth man who touched the ear of the elephant. It is like a huge wall, said the fifth man who touched the belly of the elephant. It is like a solid pipe, said the sixth man who touched the tusk of the elephant. They began to argue about the elephant and every one of them insisted uh, that he was right until it broke into a big fight. And I feel like there's an elephant and it's kind of hard to tell what the elephant is because none of us can kind of see the whole elephant. And I feel like this digital nomadism, part of a bigger elephant, I'm not sure what the elephant is. I don't know if it's capitalism. I don't know. And the, and the alienation that capitalism breeds. I don't know if it's white supremacy. I don't know if all of these things are just one part of the giant elephant. But I feel like each time I try to research this thing, I don't know what the elephant is, but it keeps being bigger and bigger than I thought of it, than I thought it was. Like, you know, like how how Turner's book kind of can take it back all the way to like the hippie times. But I'm sure if you kept looking, you'll find something in Victorian times that was the, was the roots of this. And I kind of wanted to just throw that out there and see what you guys think about as far as uh, what you guys think the big elephant uh, is. Yeah, I, th I think it's difficult to, to point to one thing, right? Because as you say, I think no matter how far you go back, you can always kind of try to trace these histories and these ideas and, and things through time, right? And, and see where they first show up and how they develop over time. Like, I think Turner's is interesting because it does go back to that period where it, it seems like these kind of ideas that influence Silicon Valley in a really material way come from. But I'm sure that those ideas were then inspired by something else, you know. Um, but I, I think I would just say, you know, if we're talking about digital nomadism and and what is kind of driving these things, like I, I'm not sure that or, or maybe this elephant like is a, a representation in a way for the entire system and in, in that we probably can't see the or maybe there are some people who are, but you know, I I certainly can't see the entirety of it. But it's like trying to find different elements of it to try to understand what's going on here. And I think like you know, we can we can go back to Turner to see where these bigger ideas come that inspired what's happening today. But I think we can also just look at the material realities of like life in the post recession era to kind of understand what is drawing people to these kind of notions of entrepreneurialism and you know being able to start this business that gives you all this freedom and like naturally people would be attracted to that in the you know world that we live in today where it's become increasingly difficult to find a job where wages you know have certainly not kept up with inflation and you know when you do get a job it's often tough to keep up with the bills the rent all those sorts of so 
naturally people, I think, are going to want to try to find a way out of that. They're going to want to try to find some security. And this is just another one of the kind of ways that certain people are trying to sell people security. Um, they're making a lot of money off of selling this ideal, uh, but a lot of people are not going to be able to follow through on that or or be able to find success through this idea because I, you know, I think it does require a lot of prerequisites to kind of set yourself up to succeed in it. But it's also like, I don't know how many random dropship products from China do people really need, right? How many ebooks on how to work from the beach do people really need? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think um, as far as like the whole elephant analogy goes, I think that's like a pretty good one. But I think it's also sort of like the answer is sort of in there as well. And that it's not really like any of these things specifically. It's sort of like all of the ways they interact. And that's one of the problems I have when I try to write about these topics. It, like when I was trying to write that piece for current affairs, it kept ballooning because I just wanted to like, and this is related to this. And like, if you look at the way people talk about these things, it's similar to how they sell MLMs and it's like a pyramid scheme and so on and so on. But yeah, I think it is sort of like the historical trend of like the alienation people feel from like their work and so on and the things Paris is saying and the way capitalism interacts with like white supremacy and such. And I do want to like quickly disclaimer that like my stories about Vietnam and stuff, obviously that's not like ascribed to an entire populace of people, just the brief conversations I had. And it's important to consider like in those conversations that I'm speaking to Vietnamese or Thai people or whatever who already speak English, which comes with like a privilege of its own. And their conversations are also obviously affected by like me being white and like influencing that conversation. So that's very fair. You know, I think a good example of how hard it is to grasp the elephant is, for example, the intellectual dark web conversation, because I've been trying to find something. And this is where I've been had so many different people um, onto it, because when look at Garrison Lovely's article, it's that, that's one part of the elephant, you know, like uh, the apologism for, you know, some of these heinous people like the Koch brothers and stuff like that. But um, there's this website it's called Six Degrees to Rogan. And somebody, I'm going to send you guys um, a link to it in the, there's a little chat part of this room. So I just uh, sent it. But someone created an algorithm where you can put two people and try to see how many degrees of separation you can... Um, I'm basically just using people who've been on Joe Rogan and, and form a degrees of separation thing. How how many degrees of separation like they have from each other. So you might put someone like Chris Hardwick and then like one of the Koch brothers and then you'll find out like one of these kind of intermediary people like say Tim Ferriss is the nexus. And it's just weird. There's 209 hosts and 12,637 people and basically everyone has like two degrees of separation from Charles Murray and the bell curve and all this stuff and i spent a lot of time looking at this site trying to put together the elephant and it's just as like that intellectual dark web it's weird as hell it's bigger than right wing or left wing even though there is a very kind of right wing strain to it but it's like if you go on a site like clubhouse i don't know if you guys have used the app clubhouse at all but there are plenty of people who are like avowed democrats you know working in silicon valley who have the same kind of predatory weird mindset and you'll find out a bunch of them donated to Kamala Harris you know like it's easy to say oh this tech mindset the Silicon Valley mindset is a pipeline to the alt-right Trump Trump-like people and Koch brothers but it's I mean I don't know I'll just say that the intellectual dark web is a perfect example of how it's hard to find a real coherence there even though you can kind of feel it there's something tying in Alex Jones with Joe Rogan with Ari Schaefer and these stand-up comedians and with Chris Hardwick but I just really can't. I mean, like people like Pete Holmes and Kumail Nanjiani are in this same, and Dan Harmon are in the same universe of uh, degrees of separation. But it's Bill Maher, who, you know, a lot of alt-righters will probably hate Bill Maher because he's so anti-Trump. Uh, there's something in the intellectual dark web that I think even that is part of the elephant, but in a way it's an elephant itself. Yeah, you know, I think I think what's going on with the inter intellectual dark web is, I don't know, interesting, I guess, in the sense that I feel like there are all these connections um, that are occurring there that help people to, I don't know, I, it's difficult to describe, right? Like, I think what you're talking about when it comes to Joe Rogan is Joe Rogan is often positioned as this figure that kind of serves as like a gateway to these more like extreme right-wing figures, right? Because he'll kind of have them on his podcast. You know, sometimes he'll ask him some, sometimes he'll push them on like their views and, and ask some critical stuff. But generally, you know, it doesn't seem to be that way. And that's kind of how a lot of these interview shows that are associated with the intellectual dark way 
work, right? So Joe Rogan might not be like, um, I don't know, alt-right or a fascist or whatever, um, but he will have someone like Jordan Peterson or whatever on his show and just give him like a really kind of friendly interview. And then, you know, maybe people watch some Jordan Peterson stuff and find someone else who's a bit more extreme than that. And it's, I guess it's kind of like this uh, kind of path that people can go down and, and sort of follow. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know, it, it's it's just interesting to, to see how it works out. And I don't know if this is accurate. I haven't done enough research on it, but I spoke to Becca Lewis recently who explained that one of the, the kind of uh, commonalities that she sees with all of these people in this kind of right-wing YouTube or podcasting space is this kind of um, dis dislike for the SJW, like the social justice warrior. Um, and that is just kind of broadened out to include a lot of things that they don't like. Um, and that serves as kind of like a, a central point for them, I guess, or, or a central interest that a lot of them, even though they have quite different views, can kind of rally around yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense, but <laughs> no, it does. It does make it does make sense. But I want to give I want to give Brett a chance to answer before I. Yeah, because um, I think both of you kind of like put your finger on something like really important. I think the most salient point there for me, T, is like that it's like you feel like something's there, like something's connecting all these things, but it's very difficult to find it. And I think um, how Paris is describing how people might go through the Joe Rogan pipeline or whatever, I think that's true. But I also think like the flip side of that is like people get this idea that they're like, they, they like adopt a lot of these like uh, right-wing or alt-right or libertarian principles. Um, and they like, but they believe themselves to be like apolitical. Like they, they, they feel like they're like above it all, right? Like they're like, well, no, like politics is like just dumb games. Like I understand like my business and like how like, like the markets and, and things like that. And um, uh, yeah, sure. I believe that like people uh, like racism is bad, but um, I'm going to go like perpetuate white supremacy in like a different country across the world. Right. Like they just have like a very skewed view of how these things work. Yeah, I agree. They do. A lot of them do definitely believe they're apolitical, but it's also kind of interesting because there's a lot of them who also view themselves as, you know, openly, unabashedly conservative. And there's also some of them who view themselves as like, you know, liberal, but none of them seem to be so much that that they have a problem while working with each other because they all seem to believe in something bigger, which is like this freedom this type of free market uh freedom to make money like you know it's like uh they can all bond on they can all bond on that so you can see all of them in some kind of big clubhouse room just talking about you know how to market themselves on social media how to um create this digital nomad lifestyle like like even the political ones can be apolitical enough to um you know partake in this utopian utopian dream yeah so even the political ones are basically apolitical at the end of the day, they're not so political that the principles get in the way of them brainstorming more schemes. I exactly. Find. And it's sort of like the pyramid scheme thing we talked about and that everyone's sort of just like trying to teach other people how to teach other people how to do it. And like, like I was saying, like a lot of them would like if you ask these people, like, are you um, racist or are you whatever? Or do you believe that white people are superior? Like most of them would like uh, like a lot of them. I mean, some are obviously going to say yes, but. <laughs> So a lot of them would say no, but then like Tim Ferriss's like number one advice in his book is like pay someone in the global south like three dollars an hour to do all your work for you, right? And it's like they just don't understand. Like there's like a disconnect there. Uh, they'll take it even further because I've read a lot of those different um, sites, and they'll say stuff like it's actually anti-racist because what yeah. they're doing <laughs> is um, the option, the alternative for them is um, worse, and you're, you're giving them the means to come out of poverty, and like this is some kind of baby step that's gonna lead to a place where i mean it's the same that kind of nafta stuff that even uh, liberals would kind of push with this kind of thing like yeah compared to us it's not a lot of money but it's uh for them it's a lot but it's gonna lead to this world where eventually there's gonna be parity you know they'll end up being as prosperous as as us after a generation or two of this you know those will be the next factory owners and they'll have enough to send their kids to college and then in a couple generations uh there'll be some kind
kind of like trickle down wealth through this. So I've seen some of these people not only be not mindful of this being racist, but view themselves as actually uplifting uh, the races by giving them a chance to be uh, exploited, which they would never accept as a rationale for their own mistreatment by their bosses, you know, like, hey. And without, yeah, yeah, sorry, and without any sort of recognition that like, um, were that to even like, happen like with without recognizing that for those people to then advance to the same level that's in air quotes um that you're at then like they would also need like a group to exploit and then like they would need a group to like you know what i mean like there's just no possible way for this to work out the way they think it's gonna work out yeah ex- yeah exactly exactly like like it's just basically like we said a, a pyramid scheme someone has to keep uh you know keep it going yeah no i i think i would just add to that like one of the interesting things with that as well is when you look back at the history, you see like these people who are promoting these kind of counter countercultural ideas for Silicon Valley, like these libertarian ideas about technology are not only working with like Bill Clinton's New Democrats and Al Gore, but are at the same time kind of like putting Newt, Newt Gingrich and these like really right wing um, like social conservatives on the cover of like Wired magazine um, because they are also saying things about how technology and like the free market can create this kind of like future that they want to see these kind of like communities and and um, way of organizing society that they want to see and i think one interesting thing that i thought about like when i was reading about all that is how even when you bring that forward to like the present you'll still see publications like TechCrunch or the verge or these other um you know, tech, uh, these other branches of the tech press, at least until recently, giving a lot of attention to people like Josh Hawley and Matt Gates, um, because they are talking about things that seem really interesting to this kind of approach to technology, this kind of digital utopianism that we were talking about earlier, that sees technology as this way to, you know, deliver whatever kind of society they want to see. But again, like I think the key there is kind of ignoring the politics or not so much ignoring, but but downplaying them in favor of like uh, market ideals and other social forces that are considered to be more important in this kind of worldview that then allows them to ignore the uh, kind of issues with the actual politics that are at play. And now you see like a lot of these publications are kind of blacklisting Josh Hawley because he's like clearly a fascist who tried to not recognize the election. But up until like a few months before that, he was like their best friend. <laughs> Pretty well in line with what I was thinking. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.